But it's so good to see you today. Always a great, uh, a great time to get with a group of men, and I am excited uh, to be here. I hope you have grabbed uh, three handouts that you have in front of you. A couple of them are, are, are worksheets that we'll take with you. I'll guide you there. One is, uh, is the Bible study itself. Each week, you'll receive a handout where you can follow along. I want you to just kind of fill in the blanks along the way for a couple reasons. One, uh, kind of keeps us focused. You can uh, take notes, um, and you can also take it with you for any kind of supplemental study you want to do. Um, we're going to be walking through, perhaps you know this, I'm going to intro set this up while these men are, are finding their way, setting up this study. We're going to be looking at the book of Nehemiah. Um, I don't know if you have ever studied this book or the last time you looked at the book of Nehemiah, but Nehemiah is, is an incredible story uh, of the cupbearer of the king, really a high official. It's, it's, it's kind of unusual. What is a cupbearer of the king? Uh, Nehemiah was a trusted leader. Uh, along with the king, uh, King uh, Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes the first. He was the third son of Xerxes. You probably have heard of him. We're going to find this in uh, in in the context here. He is in Susa, uh, is where Nehemiah is, about a thousand miles from Jerusalem, and he is uh, the third. Uh, well, Artaxerxes, the third son of Xerxes. You hear of Xerxes and Susa in another story in the Bible. Anybody? Anybody know where Xerxes shows up? He's in the, the, the book of Esther, and we find Esther there. You, you have mentioned there. He's a Persian king. Um, and so uh, we're going to find ourselves uh, right here about 446 B.C. So we're uh, in, the, in, the, in the era of the exile, and we're going to talk about this, get it in context here in just a moment. Uh, while we're um, about to dive in, and I'm going to pray for us here in a moment, I want to offer this challenge to you. A couple of things. One, be here Saturday night. Uh, we are going to have Dr. Tony Evans here in this room with us. We have a men and women's conference. Uh, some have, have wondered, is this a marriage conference? Is it, what, what, what is this? It's a men and women's conference. So yes, if you're married, bring your wife. She'll go with the women to hear Chris, Crystal Evans, uh, who is um, his, his daughter. And uh, Dr. Evans is going to be with us uh, Tony Evans, of course, is the longtime pastor at Oak Cliff Bible Church, incredible leader of the Urban Alternative and, and an international uh, speaker and uh, best-selling author. And we are so excited to have him here. He's going to be talking about what it is to be a godly man, a kingdom man. And uh, it's a short time on Saturday night. In fact, you could, uh, if you want to go on a date or, or come with a brother and find yourself here, um, and, and, and we're going to start at 6.30, and it goes to 7.45, we'll be done. So it's not a long time, it's some worship together with, with Carrie Pierce and, and crew, and we're going to worship right here together a little bit, and then Tony's going to speak. I was, uh, heard Tony recently, uh, last week, at another event, just reminded of what an, what an anointed leader uh, and, and speaker he is. So I hope you'll come and be with us. I don't know what else you may have planned Saturday night, I doubt it's better than that. And then, sat, then Sunday morning, our, our, our men and women's emphasis uh, continues on as we're going to gather as men. Now, this is for all members of our church and, and any guest uh, that are here today. I've already met some of you who, who aren't members of our church. We'd love for you to come for a unique Sunday where all of our men are going to be here in this room at 1045. All the women are going to be in the sanctuary. Uh, now, Dr. Evans will not be here. He's preaching in his own church. I'll be speaking on Sunday morning and have a special 
message for men. We have a great service uh, prepared, designed for you as men to be challenged. It's going to be a lot of fun, worshiping together and looking at God's Word together. So I hope you'll come. That's on Sunday morning. Just prior to 1045 at 915, we have connect groups, uh, Bible study groups for, for people of all ages, all walks of life. So let us help you. Find me after this is over. If you'd like to know more about our church, uh, find any of the men. Sit around your table, of course, if you're not a, not a member here. So let's, uh, let's dive in with prayer, and then I'm going to walk us through. We're going to literally go through the first two chapters, and then we're going we're gonna to break before we, we head into our, our groups. All right, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this morning. It's good to be awake and to be alive today. We thank you for the, the health you've given us. We don't take it for granted. You are good to us. We thank you for uh, the change of seasons, for cold weather, and, and for the beauty of these days. And we ask, God, that you would speak to our hearts. So, man, I want you to now just open your heart to the Lord. Ask him to speak into your heart, that his word would come alive in you. Lord, we pray that your spirit would, would guide us and teach us. We'd be courageous to obey you. And as a result of this time together, we'd live as godly men today and in the days to come. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, I suppose if there's any need in our culture today, I think many of us could, could argue that the great need we have is, is godly leadership. Uh, there's a lack of leadership that's evident in, in all aspects of our culture across the board. From the top down, you could say, in, in any organization, uh, we find a great void of leadership. There was a worldwide economic forum recently. Uh, 86% of the respondents said that the central uh, problem in our world today is a leadership crisis. And I want to uh, offer this book of Nehemiah as perhaps the best model for a leadership found in the whole Bible. Uh, Nehemiah will, will show himself to be an incredible leader uh, across the board as he heads back. And many of you know this, he is the, the one who would go back and, and guide the rebuilding of the walls. Now today, we're going to see this, um, it really breaks down as news from Jerusalem. He gets word, Nehemiah, and then we're going to see Nehemiah's prayer, his concern, and his response in chapter 1 uh, and 2. I want you to see here, to place this in context, uh, we have, uh, I know you can't really see this, can you? But, it, but I just want to be able to explain some Bible history here to place it in context. You've got seven periods of Israel's history. Uh, Abraham, about 2000 BC. You're looking at the left, uh, moving across. And then at the bottom, you have the ancient empires that are at play. We're going to find ourselves in when, when uh, the Persian, really Medo-Persian, uh, you know, Persia has taken over. This is where you find Artaxerxes, Xerxes, and others who are leading as God's people have been sent in exile. So you have Moses, about 1400 B.C. We're looking at Moses on, on Sunday mornings now, the Moses model as we walk through that series together. You have the period of the judges, then the divided, uh, well, the United Kingdom under David. Of course, the golden era of Israel's history. After David comes Solomon, and then ultimately there's the divided kingdom. After the divided kingdom, where you find many of the prophets who are calling out to God's people to turn to him, uh, the kingdom's divided. They find themselves in, in captivity. It's uh, Babylon initially. Uh, you have Assyria, Babylon, other world powers. 
that are putting them in their place. God is using these powers and leaders to really chastise and discipline his people. So they find themselves in what's known as, as the exile. This is where we find ourselves now. And I want to pick that up in chapter uh, 1 of the book of, of Nehemiah. Uh, let's look at chapter 1, and literally, let's walk through this together as I have time now over the next 15 minutes or so. We're going um, to walk through this together. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now, it happened in the month of, this is Keslev, it's, it's called. It's about, uh, it's November, December, so their months aren't exactly like ours, Jewish calendar. In the 20th year, as I, it's the 20th year of the reign of King Artaxerxes. That's how they measured uh, time here. Nehemiah is in Susa. This is the winter capital of the ancient Persian Empire. Um, so Artaxerxes I, in his 20th year of leadership, he was the king, the Persian king, for 41 years. One of my brothers came with uh, certain men from Judah. So they've come a long way. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped uh, who had survived the exile. So there's a remnant, there's a group in exile, still Jews living in Jerusalem. And they said to me, verse 3, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. We know that the wooden gates uh, around the city were, were, were destroyed. This was during. This has been years now, hundreds of years since the Babylonian captivity, when the when the the, the city was destroyed. They're in great trouble and shame. I want you to consider this, uh, men. Back in the day, of course, uh, walls uh, meant a lot of things. Walls meant that the, the city was defined. The walls meant that there was protection around the city. The walls meant that it was, they were impenetrable. The walls meant that you, you had, had, uh, had God's protection around you. And, and there's, a, there's a greater spiritual thing going on here. Uh, the walls are not simply walls, but they are really a symbol of God's protection over his people and the fact that they were together, unified in harmony, worshiping him. And to have walls that are in disrepair would reveal uh, a lack of, uh, of, of commitment to the Lord, a lack of leadership, and a lack of God's people united together uh, to worship him. In verse 4, uh, we see here his response. So what I want you to see, first of all, as we look at Nehemiah's response, first I want you to write this down, Nehemiah's reality. So we see here, he, he's not afraid of the facts. He gets the facts. This is not fake news. This is real news. Uh, he receives it straight from a brother who's been there, and he is crushed over the news. So he, he, we're going to see how he responds here. Um, now, Max Dupree is the one, he wrote a book called Leadership is an Art, and in it, he starts the book by saying, uh, the first task of a leader is to define reality. Uh, what, what, what Nehemiah is going to do as he moves forward here, he's going to be clear with the facts, and he's actually going to collect his own facts as he's going to evaluate uh, Jerusalem himself. He's going to go there himself and assess the damage. He's not just going to fly by the seat of his pants. He's not just going to start talking about all that needs to be done without getting the facts. And he does so personally, and he does so first. But what he receives first is crushing news for him. As one of God's people, he, he sees that the people 
are in great trouble and shame. Dupree says that the first task of a leader is to define reality. And then he says the last task uh, is to say thank you. And then he says in between the leader is a servant and a debtor. Think about this. Every single one of you men are leaders. Wherever you are in your organization, you're leading. Leadership is influence. If you're, uh, if you're married, clearly you're a leader in your relationship, in your home. If, you're, if you have children, clearly you are a leader within your family and in your home. Many of you men are leaders in Christian ministry, in your church, and, and God has called you out to be men of influence. The first task of a leader is to find reality. How are we doing here? We're doing well. We're doing terribly here. Define it, not to be afraid of it. Name it, call it out, get the facts, and then address that. That's what we're going to see Nehemiah do. But I love this, what Dupree says is that in, in between, the, 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 um, the leader is a servant and a debtor. Now, that sounds clearly biblical. The debtor piece, we're indebted to anyone who would allow us to lead. And so we, we serve those that we're leading. We're going to see that Nehemiah does so. So Nehemiah's reality is not, uh, not good news. Secondly, I want you to see Nehemiah's response. In verse 4, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept. Look at this. And mourned for days. And I continued. Watch, watch his first response, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. This was convicting for me uh, as I think about when I hear a challenging word, when I hear of someone whom I love in trouble, when's the last time you wept over the state of a friend or a loved one in your life? When's the last time you responded by saying, the first thing I need to do is hit my knees? Now, you probably have done that when you've heard news that was tragic or surprising for you with someone you loved. But I wonder how many times have we, have we cried out for God to move, maybe in, 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 in your church? Have you been brokenhearted over the fact that, that, that our church or a church you're involved in is not reaching the lost as it should? That somehow the walls are in disrepair? Maybe it's an area that you, you do have influence over. Maybe it's a place where you can provide leadership. When's the last time you were heartbroken? Not just angry. We've talked about a, a holy discontent and a passion that can point us to our calling, as it did in Moses' life. But anger is not the equivalent of calling and influence. If we can funnel that, that challenge and that passion out of love and concern for others, Nehemiah's response is one of fasting and prayer. That says a lot about him right from the start. You're going to see in Nehemiah that this is not about me. It's about God. It's not about my power. It's about his. So he draws from the power source of heaven. He turns to pray to God first above all else. And then in verse 5, I want you to see here Nehemiah's repentance. Number three, write that down. Nehemiah's repentance. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night. Look at this. He's con constantly praying for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we, look at this, he's owning this. Here's a guy who lives in Susa. He's a thousand miles from Jerusalem, but he's one of God's people. He sees himself as part of the problem. This is not somebody else's problem. He's not pointing the fingers to those. What in the world are those Jews doing? My brother's doing in, in Israel. 
uh, he, he owned this. This is a unique thing in our culture, in, in the West, global West, to say that I'm an individual, I am me, I'm not connected with others, I will do what I want. There was such a communal life and a familial life of the people. He connected with his tribe, and if his tribe was in trouble, he was in trouble, and he was a part of the problem and a part of the solution. And I wonder if you see yourself that way. When you see challenges in your ministry, in your family, do you see yourself as a part of the challenge? He's fasting and praying on behalf of the people. How often do you respond to needs around you with fasting and praying? Say, this is a big deal. I need to start fasting and praying. Fasting being this central focus on God. You're going to give away even time eating or food in order to focus on him on behalf of someone else. But look at what he says here. In, in verses 5 through 7, it goes on. He says, even I, my father's house, in the latter part of verse 6, have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. So he's drawing back from the Ten Commandments, back from what God has said, and he's repenting. Look at number 4. I want you to write this down. Nehemiah remembers. So he remembers verse 8 through 11. We've seen a little bit of this. What does he remember? First, he remembers who God is. You see that? He says in verse 5, you're great and awesome. You're a great and awesome God. You know what's happening. You can help me, and you can help us rebuild the walls. Now, we don't know that that's what he's going to do yet, but that's exactly what's going to happen here in a moment. What, what God does, he remembers what God does. He's the one who keeps his covenant. And steadfast love. Sometimes we need to come to God and, and in our, for ourselves, not for him. God doesn't forget, but we, we forget. We need to come before God and say, Lord, you said that this would happen. You said that you'd bring peace into my heart if I'd come to you. You said that you would bless those who follow you. You'd give me strength if I follow your commands. We just repeat back to him the commands that he already has laid forth. He's a covenant-keeping God. And when we pray, we simply can bring Scripture back to him and say, God, you have promised to do this. And in so doing, we're built up and strengthened. He remembers who God is. He remembers what God does. And look at this. He remembers what God has done. You know, all of gospel-centered life is one of remembrance. It's constantly remembering what Christ has done for us. You need to preach the gospel to yourself every single day of your life. Even today, to be reminded of who you are in him, go forth into your day. Whatever you have today, whatever uh, challenges you'll face at work or in your family or at home, whatever's happening in your life, you need to remember who you are in Christ. That Christ died on the cross for your sins, that you've been set free by him. You have the power of the Holy Spirit in your life to, to accomplish whatever God has laid before you today. Remember who you are. All of life as a believer is one of remembrance. Nehemiah remembers who God is, what he does, and, and what he has done. He draws from the commands of Moses. He says, if you are faithful, uh, you told us. If you are faithful, you, you and if we would return and keep, command, keep my commandments and do them, he says, I will gather you back together. Here's the promise that Nehemiah is holding on to. And I will dwell with you there. He says, Moses said this was the case. This is out of Leviticus, by the way, chapter 26, verse 33. He's bringing God's promises back to him. And, uh, and he's saying, this is what you said you would do because you're a covenant-keeping God. So watch this. Next, Nehemiah prays. When do you see a problem? And I just want to challenge you. 
as you face problems today, as you hear news over the next couple of days, when you see something that's going to be challenged for you, what is your first response? Someone said that prayer is always our first line of defense. I'd offer this. A prayer is the first line of offense. Prayer is the first step towards any situation. As you do what Nehemiah has done and say, God, before I take a step, before I'm so prideful to think that I can take care of this, I'm coming to you. You're the one who will lead the way and guide me. I'm coming to you first. And man, this is why it's so important on uh, days when we, we don't come together on a Thursday morning like this over these next weeks ahead, that you spend time in the Word, time in prayer every single day before you face the day. That you would spend time in the Word and, and seek after God in prayer. Look at how he prays. He prays courageously. All right? He says in verse 6, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open. He prays continually. You've already caught that. Verse 4. Uh, continued fasting and praying. He says, before you day and night in verse 6. You see that? He prays confessionally. We've seen that. He's humble, confessing the sins of Israel, your people. He's praying on behalf of the people, but he, he owns it. He says, we. He says, I, even I have sinned. My father's house has sinned. I'm part of the problem. He owns it. Check out the humility. That Nehemiah has, what I'd, I'd offer as the first characteristic of a great leader, humility. He prays confessionally. He prays specifically. Again, he says, I have sinned. He's naming how they have sinned. You know, as we consider the walls of Jerusalem, I, I, I thought of, the, of course, the verse, pride cometh before the fall, right? Pride is what leads us to, the, to a fall. Pride is why the the walls are in disrepair, literally, and, and pride is why the walls of your life, men, are in disrepair. Let's think about this cold weather we've been having. Uh, what would it be like if the walls of your house either were falling down, if the doors of your house had been burned and destroyed, you're going to be cold all night long. Uh, if you don't have walls around your house, you're in trouble, not only from the northern that might come and the weather that comes, but, uh, but those who might come in, rob, steal, and destroy. And the evil one comes into the life of men whose walls are in disrepair. This is where I want us to head as we think about our own lives, consider the walls of our own lives. We're going to see now Nehemiah's return, number five, his return. So he prays, and I'm going to have to move through this part rather quickly here to, to offer us uh, into our, our times, our groups. He goes on to say that, uh, yes, you've, you've said that... Uh, he brings Moses' challenge or his words to, to, uh, to the Lord and says, You said if we're faithful, you'll bring us back together. So, O Lord, verse 11, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to, to your servant today. And give him, uh, grant him mercy in, in the sight of this man. Now, this man is going to be the king, we're going to see. Now, he says, Now, I was a cupbearer of the king. He's a trusted official. As close as anyone to the king, by the way. And then in chapter 2, I'll, I'll just uh, highlight a few things. In the month of Nisan, now we're in April, uh, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. Now, this is interesting. You're not, you're not to be sad in the presence of the king. The king just wants happy people around him. Uh, now, here's a guy who may not want to... Uh, want to receive reality. Sometimes as leaders, you know, if we're not careful, I know this is true for me, um, you may not get the full news. 
You know, people may not want to say what really needs to be said. It's why leaders humble themselves and seek out the truth. Tell me. Tell me about this. You know, not to be afraid of what's happening. Well, this king, at least, he said, don't be unhappy. I don't want unhappy people. And so it was, a, it was a risky thing. The king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. He's saying, what's going on? Then I was very much afraid. You start to see how, how serious this was. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Now, this is his way of saying, uh, hey, I'm reassuring my loyalty to you. You the man. However, you know, he, he's saying, you the great one, live forever why should I not be sad? Why should my, not, my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what are you requesting? What do you, what do you want to do about this? Now watch this. So I prayed. There he is again. He said, what, what can I do? What can, how, how can I help? The king is, is, is saying, I'm, con- I'm concerned about what You're sad. I, you're one of my trusted leaders. What, what, are, you, what are we going to do about this? What, what can I do? And the first thing he does is pray because he's about to offer a bold, bold request. Pray to the God of heaven. It's very interesting, that latter part of verse 4. Uh, we can't just jump over that. Verse 5, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah. To the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. There's the hinge point of history here for God's people. It goes on now. What happens is he makes an even bolder request. Maybe with knees shaking, he's standing before the king and he says, I'm going to go a step further. I mean, sometimes you don't have because you do not ask. And so he stands before the king and he says, Here's what I want you to do. If you'd write letters to the governors in the province of beyond the river, a place uh, that I may pass through. He says, give me documents so I can get to where I want to be. And even more than that, would you give me materials? Would you make sure that I get all that I need to rebuild these walls? I need timber for the gates. I need you to help me. And then look at the latter part of verse 8. It says, and the king granted me what I asked. But watch what he says. For the good hand of my God was upon me. God did this. And this is each one of us need to recognize what blessings we have in our lives. We need to know uh, or say, say to God, he's the one who's done this for me. You know, every one of us can look back on our lives. Those of you men who have been in business or maybe you've had successful work through the years, you can look back on your life. If you're humble and honest and you can say, you know what, without God intervening in that moment in my life, I would never be where I am today. If he had not blessed me with, I did not do this, God did this. And for us to recognize that and give him the glory. So then what happened was, he, then, then I came, look at verse 9. I came to the governors uh, of the provinces beyond the river, gave them the king's letters. So he continues on and he has uh, access now through these places uh, where he needs to go to get all the way back to Jerusalem. Now, this is going to come into play in verse 10. Uh, you may, if you've read this story before, you may recognize these names. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, servant, heard this, it displeased them greatly. So they're threatened. These, the, those in power want to stay in power. And they're threatened by these, this new idea that these people were going to re, reestablish uh, Jerusalem when they discover what Nehemiah is doing. It displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. I mean, listen, the reason that uh, 
when we go into places where the gospel has not yet been presented, the reason that it's often dangerous is because there are people there who don't want the gospel to be presented because it's a threat to their power or their religion, right? And so we see a threat here. Anytime there's injustice that's taking place among a people, there's someone who's in power who's bringing about the oppression. And so when you step into that space, this could be in personal uh, uh, relationships, could be in your workplace, could be even in your family. When you step into that space to help someone who's being oppressed or pushed down, you're going to come up against opposition because someone in power wants them to stay there. And this is why the work of justice in our city and around the world is a challenging and often dangerous thing. Those in power don't want to give it up. We're going to hear the name of Sanballat and Tobiah over and over again. One of the great challenges we'll see is that Nehemiah stays the course throughout his work, even against great opposition. And if you can do anything great for God, you're going to face opposition. And this is what we'll see in his life. I want you to think about what God's calling you to do right now. Maybe you're not doing it because you know already you're facing opposition. Perhaps you've not stepped into a place of faith that God's calling you into because you know there's going to be opposition. You've not even made that first step. Or perhaps you're in a position now where you feel like giving up at times. Or you want to be angry. Or you want to personify the challenge in that person. You need to recognize that it's a spiritual battle. First, and turn to God to give you favor among the people. So he, he goes to Jerusalem, went there three days, and now again, for the sake of time, I'll just simply let you know here, those I arose in the night, this is, uh, this is, tw- this is uh, verse 12, he rose in the night, I and just a few men, and I told no one what my God, here he is again, personal reference to my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. He only had one animal. He rode, he rode a, a, maybe, a, maybe a horse or a donkey. That's all he had. He went around. And then he names the gates, the valley gate, the dragon gate, the dung gate. I'm not sure you want to go through the dung gate. And uh, I inspected the walls of Jerusalem. So what he's doing now, he goes to the fountain gate, the king's pool, the valley gate. He goes into great detail going around the walls and inspecting, assessing the situation. Again, he's not just flying by the seat of his pants. He's getting data. He's looking to see what is really going on here. This is not fake news. I'm checking it out myself. This is an important thing to do in our day. And anything you take upon yourself to accomplish that God's laid on your heart. He did his own preliminary work. He sees that Jerusalem, sure enough, is lying in ruins. The gates are burned. And then he says in verse 17, Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem and we may no, no longer, that we may no longer suffer derision in the ESV. That's a ridicule, that we may no longer suffer mockery. How can God's people be mocked like this? Let's step it up. And I told them of the hand of my God, here he is again, that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me, that he'd been affirmed and, saw, and found favor. And they said, here it is, let us rise up and build. Here we go. He's rallying people around him. He had a small group initially. Then he starts to cast vision. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. They got ready. But, see verse 19? Uh-oh. Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, they heard of it. And they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing you are doing? Are you rebel, rebelling against the king? See, again, a threat to the power. Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build. 
but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. So here's what happens. Nehemiah's return is such that he goes back and he decides we're going to build these walls. Now again, what's the, the big deal of these walls? Without the walls, the city's vulnerable. I want you to think about your own life, men, as we turn towards uh, conversation together, men uh, encouraging men. And the beauty of these mornings is men, this, is, this doesn't happen in many places uh, in our church where we have men, cross-generational groups of men coming together. And you men who are older men, I want to encourage you, young men among us, we want you in our lives. Our young men want older men to mentor them. People say, why are millennials not, not involved in the church? Why are the young people leaving the church? Because they're not being discipled by older men. That's why. What's the problem with this Generation Z of young people? They're leaving. They've not been discipled. Every generation below us, whatever their problem is, it's on us, the older generation. And we can turn the tide if we'll invest in younger men. Walls in disrepair showed uh, neglect and lack of leadership, unity among the people. The walls represented the strength and stability of the people. And here we see uh, that Nehemiah would not have a, a, a passivity of spirit, that he would, call, he, would, he would answer the call of God. And so look at Isaiah 49, verse 15. You can see it on the screen there. Can a woman forget her nursing child? that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb. Even these, for, these may forget, yet I will not forget. Behold, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. What is he saying here? This is 250 years before Nehemiah, by the way. Isaiah is, is saying that the Lord sees your life. He sees the walls of your life, not as they are, but as they ought to be. They are continually before me. And here's what I want us to do now. I want you to assess the walls of your life. There are different walls that make up your house, if you will, your life, the dwelling place of God, now your life. I want you to assess different areas of your life. It says clearly your foundation of salvation uh, is Christ himself. You know, we think about walls and disrepair or falling down. I think of that parable of uh, building your house on the rock. The problem with walls, I know when you see cracks in your walls, it's a foundation problem, right? But today I want us to consider that we have the foundation of our salvation in Christ, but that we have walls in our lives that could be in disrepair. And what I want you to do, I've broken it down this way. You can do it in several ways. Four, four aspects of your life, spiritual, relational, physical, and vocational. Just uh, led our staff into a kind of an annual process we go through. In each of these areas, I want to encourage you men, can't do this now, but in a homework, to, to set some goals, maybe three to five goals as we've done, and I've done this year, every area here of your life. Spiritual could be praying every day. You're going to do that. Make it measurable. You're going to read the Word of God. When are you going to do that? Your involvement in church, you're going to step up, be committed. You're going to be involved in ministry. What about witness towards those who don't know the Lord? Then relational, of course, you, you know that. It'd be your spouse or children, family or friends, maybe parents uh, or a son or daughter. Um, physical uh, exercise and rest and, uh, and a diet that, that uh, would allow you to, to serve the Lord in better ways. You're going to manage your life in different ways. When you think vocationally, what are your goals? Discipline, goals, uh, working hard, having an end to the day. Here's the challenge for me when I was asked, Jeff, when does your week end? And I couldn't answer that question. I said, my week doesn't really end. You need an end. 
And I realized that I was practicing what one guy called an arrogance of capacity. I can do that. I can do that. You look on, on paper, if you're like me, I got 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, I got 12. I can, I can do that. I got time to do that. When you don't realize that, that often, I know for me, it's pride that leads me to a life that's too full and that can lead to anxiety and too much that's happening. It's pride thinking that I am the one that can take care of everybody's problems. I'm the one that needs to do that. And so the Lord is calling us to rebuild our lives. Men, the neglected heart will turn from God and we will see our walls crumble down. And so I want you to consider your life. What I've done is given you, um, as, we, as we now seek to do an honest spiritual assessment as a result of this study together today, I've given you here uh, personal accountability. This is a piece that uh, some men have put together who are involved in, in uh, personal accountability with other men. Uh, Sam Holm was a part of this as he was leading our men's ministry. Marty Lewis and others who are walking through this together uh, every, every day with other men. If you want to know more about personal accountability, I see Marty right back there. Marty Lewis who serves with our young men and women in a preschool ministry. You can talk with Marty. This is a great tool for you to use with other men in your life. Some of you would be so courageous to do that. But what I want you to do in your groups now is to talk through this life domains assessment piece. I want you to just respond and react and, and talk about what you've heard today uh, from me. You can do that as a facilitator, leader at your, at your table helps guide you. But I want you to take some time. Uh, we'll only have time to maybe highlight some areas where you look at these questions in every domain of your life. And I want you to look at this personally today at some point, maybe tomorrow morning as you wake up. But get back to this personal assessment, and I want you to ask, what's, what's working? What's broken? Where do you need clarity? What's missing? What do you need to add? So this is a great exercise for you. Right now, I want to, um, to let you release you to your groups. Now, we have names and uh, leaders, table leaders uh, at the tables, and I believe we have tables. Uh, Jeff, tell me. We have tables and groups that can meet in the outside of these rooms as well. Am I right? Okay, fantastic. If you have uh, needs or thoughts, if you'd like to be uh, one of the leaders, if you want to continue to, to invite men to come and join you as you seek to disciple a group of men, you do that. Talk to Jeff White about how uh, we're seeking to disciple men during this time. Okay, so let's do this for the sake of time. I'm just going to have you go. Find your, your, your place. Find a way to a table. If you're, if you're at one now, it seems like we are pretty much. You can do so, but now's the time. If you need to head off to work for whatever reason, do so. Listen, invite men to come. Guys, listen, we, we kicked it off in the midst of a lot that's happening. I want to be sure that we're promoting this in places of influence where you are. Invite men to come next week. We'll catch them up real quick in this study. All right? Great to see you.